G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. We are looking at the Word of God, verse by verse. Not only what does it say, but what does it actually mean, and how we can apply it to our lives. Because when the teaching of God's Word is practical, then it bears much fruit. But if it's not practical, it can almost be pointless. The amazing thing is God's Word is very, very practical. It doesn't just tell you what is happening and why it's happening but what you can do about it as well. We are at the beginning of the Gospel of John, chapter 13. And chapter 13 is entitled, The Hour Has Come. What hour are we talking about? The hour of Christ's death for our sakes and his resurrection also for our sakes too. Because the Gospel is comprised of a very simple message. Jesus Christ, Son of God, son of David, soon coming king, died on the cross to atone for our sins. He vicariously took the penalty on himself. So Christ died, was buried, rose again, according to the scriptures. This, in essence, describes the gospel. So the hour has come for the new covenant, mentioned first in Jeremiah 31, to be ratified by the blood of Jesus. Remember that biblical covenants, which are binding agreements between God and humanity, are ratified by the shedding of blood, something that represents life, something that costs a lot, is put into play so that we are able to get the benefits of the covenant. Remember, when a covenant is kept, it's plus plus for everyone. When covenants are not kept, then it can be catastrophic. We're going to learn more about all this as we go along. But our particular lesson here from John 13 verses 1 to 11 is called washing the disciples' feet. Now remember that people did much walking, and the roads could be dusty, and they wore sandals, So when they came to a place where they're going to sojourn, that would be one of the first things, is to wash the feet, as well as wash the hands so they could be ready for a meal. The amazing thing is that Jesus Christ, who knew what is called heavenly glory and splendor, agreed to come to this planet to be born into an impoverished family, to be born and to be raised in an obscure village. In other words, though he were rich in heavenly glory, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. And it tells us here in verse 3 of John 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he was come from God 
and went to God. He riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself, and after that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Can you imagine having so much power, splendor, and authority, and yet you go to your followers even, and you begin to wash their feet, from supreme exultation to breathtaking humility. It is astounding. But you know what? It's the kind of thing we all need. We need humility. We don't need, of course, self-pity. We don't need to put ourselves down. We don't need to offer to be downtrodden. But humility, of course, takes the focus off us, and it puts the focus on others. Humility also is defined as a recognition that we need and want God. To such people as this, God says that he will give you more grace. Let us look at the entire portion of John 13, verses 1 to 11. The lesson here is called Washing the Disciples' Feet. And again, this reference is John chapter 13, verses 1 to 11. Friends, let's listen carefully, because what you're about to hear is God's word. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he was come from God, and went to God. He riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, what I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not, save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, ye are not all clean. Our reading is from John chapter 13, verses 1 to 11. And our lesson is called, Washing the Disciples' Feet. Well, we begin with verse 1 of chapter 13. Chapter 13 is, the hour has come. And that's also what this verse is about. The hour has come. This is a time of transition. Transition of what? For the longest time, Jesus enjoyed special protection because his hour had not yet come. We read this in John 7, verse 30, and John 8, verse 20. Now here, in chapter 13, the hour was practically at the doorstep. That special protection would be removed, 
by the express will and foreordained purpose of God, something God had planned long, long before. And what exactly happened in the hour, or would happen? Jesus will depart out of this world and return to the Heavenly Father. But of course, prior to his ascension, something else will happen. He will enter into a period of intense suffering to the point of death. And the purpose for this suffering and death is for the sins of the world. When did the hour begin, this hour that has come? It says, now before the feast of the Passover. Jesus would become the Passover lamb who would take away the sins of the world. And we can give you some reference for that. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is in John 1, 29 and 36, and 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. This same lengthy verse speaks about Jesus loving his own, which were in the world. Now, who were his own? Well, they are the disciples. When you are a bona fide disciple of Jesus, you belong to him. And friends, that's a goal you should aim for, belonging to Jesus. When he is your Savior and Lord and Good Shepherd and High Priest and many other wonderful and celestial titles that he has, you are in the best hands possible. Jesus knows his own and takes care of his own. But when you're not his own, because you're not following him, then you may face the menacing prospect of having him say, I never knew you. Well, that is a totally unnecessary scenario. Jesus can know you and will know you when you say yes to the gospel and become his disciple, following him with a whole heart at all times. Praise God for that. So the same lengthy verse speaks about the disciples. Now he would demonstrate the great love he had for them. How chosen were the disciples? First, Jesus himself chose them. Having chosen them, he gave himself to them because it was the Heavenly Father who gave the disciples to Jesus in the first place. He won them over, and they had surrendered to him and followed him. Very important points. And so now we have Judas Iscariot, who was one of the disciples, but he would end up in the wrong field. He would end up lost. He would end up following the devil, having forsaken Jesus. It is madness of the highest order, but then that's corrupt human nature, madness. Or as the old cliche says, cutting off your nose to spite your face. Judas may have disagreed with Jesus on things, but ultimately Judas' motivation for betraying Jesus was greed. He wanted money, and he got it. 30 pieces of silver, a dastardly deed, with a short-term benefit, which Judas would later regret of, but it wasn't a regret that led to repentance and life. So the motivator here in John thirteen two, what motivated Judas to betray Jesus? Well, we know it's money, but how did it come about? Now contrast the previous verse speaking about the Lord and his great love for his followers. But now look at this verse. John 13, 2. The devil put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, 
the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. For many years, as I said, I wondered what made him do it. The answer is that he loved money and he was a thief. We read that in John 12, verse 6. Jesus' love versus Judas's greed could not be more stark. It was the devil's intent to destroy Jesus, and he found a willing candidate with the traitor, Judas Iscariot. Oh, let's all look at his example, learn from his mistakes, and avoid it like the plague. John thirteen three. Jesus knowing. Jesus' knowledge of God was priceless. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. In fact, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, it tells us all authority is given to him in heaven and in earth. And in John three thirty-five, it says that God has given all things into his hands. Jesus knew. He came from God. He knew he was returning to God. Thus, Jesus was supremely secure in himself. He knew who he was. He knew from where he came. He knew where he was going. And by the way, we can live like that too. We should know who we are, in Christ that is. We can be the same. We can know who we are in Christ. We can know from where we came. We should know where we are going. It's called assurance of salvation. It is a wonderful place to be, friends. And though there are Christian people who don't have this assurance or who don't know these answers to the questions of who am I, where did I come from, where I'm going, you can know all these things. That's why it's important in your walk of discipleship with Jesus to know the Word of God. That's why we provide this service. So Jesus knew he is secure in himself. So in verse 4, confident in himself, Jesus rose up from the supper, put his garment aside, took a towel, wrapped it around his waist. And what does he do? Verse 5 of John 13. He begins to pour the water into the basin. And then the most remarkable action He is washing the dirty feet of his disciples, or at least the dusty feet, and he wipes them dry with the towel that was around his waist. Peter, ever the impulsive one, responds, Lord, are you really going to wash my feet? This entire situation for Peter was awkward. The disciples had been reclining at a horseshoe-shaped triclinium. This is a table, but it's down below. I mean, it's like hardly off the ground in the triclinium. They were not seated at a table, but instead they are reclining on pillows with one elbow on the pillow and the other arm free to take the food. Their feet were pointed towards the wall. They were unwashed and possibly they stank. Now, after the meal, Jesus was giving a much needed foot washing, a task that is normally reserved for the humblest of servants to perform. Peter, like the others, was stunned, but he didn't process quietly. He told what he thought for all the world to hear. And then Jesus makes a comment in verse 7 of John 13. Understanding will come. 
Yes, Jesus insisted on washing everyone's feet. It was not optional. But they did not understand at the time what he was doing and why he was doing it. But the understanding of the why would come down the track. So Peter protests in verse 8, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. His feelings were sincere, and, of course, they were understandable. How can the greatest of masters wash the feet of the most humble of disciples? Jesus, again, made it non-optional. If I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Humility is displayed here, but also something very potent. The Lord cannot have fellowship in a meaningful way with anyone who is not submitted to him, and who is not cleansed by him. To fellowship with him means to receive the washing he offers. What a valid point. In verse 9, Peter talks about, well then, if you're going to wash my feet, why not wash everything? Resign to the fact that Jesus is going to persist in the foot washing. Peter wonders, why stop there? Why not wash my hands and my head? It sounds reasonable, But this suggestion gets the thumbs down from Jesus himself. Because in verse 10, he says, When you are washed, you are completely clean. The only thing that will need constant attention are your sandal-bound feet. There is a distinction between the full bath versus the periodic washing. However, Jesus highlights the unforgivable iniquity of Judas Iscariot by saying that you, second person plural, are clean, but not all. Because it says, finally, in John thirteen eleven, Jesus knew who would betray him, hence why he said, but not all. Now our lesson is called washing the disciples' feet. And our lesson for life is this. Jesus, our great role model, sets a supreme example of humility, ministry, yet authority in the washing of the disciples. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.